Well, tonight's topic is the topic of Mormonism. The topic of Mormonism. Question for you. How many of you have actually had Mormon missionaries knock on your door here in uh, the North County area? Okay, Uh, I'm in the right place apparently here tonight then. Well, I'll tell you what most Christians do when a Mormon knocks on their door. They look out the eye hole. You're laughing because you've done this. I've done this too. They look out the eye hole. They see the missionaries there on the doorstep, bikes parked down on the porch, and they run upstairs, look out the curtains, and they're like, kids, get down, be quiet, you know, act like we're not home. Why don't many Christians like to answer their doors when Mormons knock? Well, at the top of the list would be the fact that they're fearful. We'd have to be honest. A lot of times it's just plain old fear that causes us to not open the door. Why are we fearful, though? Well, because oftentimes we're unfamiliar with Mormon teachings or we don't know what to say. And so we don't want to, you know, give some blundering presentation of our belief system, you know, to someone knowing that they're well trained. They've gone to school to evangelize Christians on the doorstep. And, you know, who am I to to put up much of a battle, you know, for the truth. Or people are afraid of having their faith challenged. They realize they're weak in the faith and they, you know, they know that maybe they would be confused. And so they just run upstairs, look out the blinds, and so on. But the Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, that God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. We see God's heart here for a lost and perishing world. He desires that all people know the truth. He desires that all people be saved. That would include Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Muslims, you name the religion and its adherents. But notice this, in order for a person to be saved, they're going to have to come to a knowledge of the truth. A knowledge of the truth. Now, this is why it's so important, guys, that we open our door and engage in loving dialogue with people of other religions, especially when God allows them to come right to our door. Because we have the truth. We have the word of God. And who else is going to share it with these people if we don't? And so it's important that we learn how to dialogue with them. So this evening we're going to do a study on Mormonism for a couple of reasons. Number one, that you might be inoculated against their false teachings. And secondly, that you might be better prepared to share the truth with Mormons who come to your door or those who may uh, be considering joining the Mormon church. In fact, it's safe to say that sooner or later, someone you know is going to join the Mormon church. Why do I say that? Because Mormon missionaries convert more than 310,000 people every single year. And listen to this. As many as 80% of Mormon converts every year come from Protestant, evangelical, Christian backgrounds. The Mormon church currently has 52,000 
1,000 full-time missionaries on the streets. Currently, they have 12 million members. They are the largest, most successful cult in the history of the world. With that many members, it's easy to see why. And they have a multi-million dollar advertising campaign designed to bring in additional members. Studies show that by the year 2020, the number of Mormon missionaries on the street and church members in the church will roughly double. Brigham Young University has projected that if the Mormon church continues to grow at its present rate, there will be more than 256 million Mormons worldwide by the year 2080. So you can see why it's important that we know something about this religion. In our time together tonight, we want to consider, number one, the origin of the Mormon church. Where did it start? Who started it? And that kind of a thing. Secondly, I'm going to share with you four false teachings of the Mormon church. Thirdly, we'll consider some evidence that the Book of Mormon cannot be the word of God. And then we'll wrap things up for a few minutes talking about witnessing to Mormons on your doorstep. Let's go ahead and pray and we'll continue. Heavenly Father, we thank you this evening for your word. Without it, we would have no means of testing things and holding fast to that which is actually true. So we thank you, God, for so clearly revealing yourself to us in the word of God. Lord, we thank you for this church. I thank you for this pastor and the servants here, Lord, that they've opened the doors for us to just come in tonight and Uh, We pray to be a blessing to the congregation. I pray for my brothers and sisters here, Lord, that they would be encouraged in their faith, that they would have their own faith strengthened, that they would leave here not only knowing what's wrong with Mormonism, but that they'd even have a better grasp on the word of God. And Lord, we also pray for anyone here in our midst who is yet to have surrendered their life to you. Perhaps even a Mormon, just out of curiosity, has visited us tonight, Lord. We thank you that they're here. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be speaking to every heart and every mind here tonight. Bless our study. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's start off for a few minutes and talk about the origin of the Mormon church. The origin of the Mormon church. The church was founded by that man, a man by the name of Joseph Smith, Joseph Smith was born in the state of Vermont in 1805. Now, somewhat confused as a young man about the disagreements between the denominational churches of the day, Joseph Smith tells us that he took the verse found in James chapter 1, verse 5, to the Lord in prayer. What does James chapter 1, verse 5 say? It says, if any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. So, as the story goes, Joseph Smith, lacking wisdom about which church to join, he walked into the woods to pray to God for a revelation about which church he should join. Now, according to Joseph Smith, God the Father and Jesus Christ appeared to him there in the forest and supposedly informed him, stop, (laughs) stop, stop, stop. Guys, this is one of the reasons it's so important to know the Bible. If someone comes out of the forest someday and tells you that they have seen God the Father visibly in human-like form, you should immediately realize that an attempt 
at deception is taking place. Why is that? Well, John wrote in the Gospel of John that no man has seen God at any time. No man has seen. He's speaking about God the Father. Now he goes on to say the big, uh, you know, that the, the Son has explained the Father. He's revealed to us who God is. But no man has seen God the Father. Why not? Well, because Jesus said this in John chapter 4, verse 24, that God is spirit. He doesn't have a human body of flesh and bones like Joseph Smith claimed. And Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, very clearly says God is not a man. Joseph Smith comes out of the forest and says that God the Father had a human-like body. And he appeared to me. And, And the Mormon church, even down to this day, believes that God the Father has a body of flesh and bone. Well, we would have a great issue with what Joseph Smith claimed back there in the forest if we knew our Bibles. Lots of people in Joseph Smith's day did not know their Bibles very well, and they were easily duped. Now, let's get back to what I was saying. According to Joseph Smith, God the Father and Jesus Christ appeared to him there in the forest and supposedly informed him that all of the churches were wrong, that their creeds were an abomination, and that their professors, their pastors, their leaders, their teachers were all corrupt. That was his message for the church at large in the 19th century, the 1800s, here in America. What a charge to lay at the feet of the church, the Christian church here in America. There were hundreds of great churches in America here in the 1800s. Now, it's important to keep in mind that a Christian's response to the claims of the Mormon church, like we're doing tonight, is not a mean-spirited attack on their faith, as some Mormons like to claim. What we're doing tonight is simply a response to Joseph Smith's attack on Christianity. We're not here to bash Mormons this evening. We love the Mormon people and are only concerned with their theology. We're genuinely concerned for their spiritual well-being and we believe that we have good reason to be concerned. It's out of love that we meet here tonight and dedicate a message on this topic. Now, moving along in their early history, in 1823, three years after supposedly being visited there in the forest, Joseph Smith alleges that a glorified resurrected being named Moroni appeared to him and told him of golden plates that were buried in a nearby hillside in the town of Cumora in upstate New York. These plates, as the story goes, were written by an ancient prophet's uh, historian by the name of Mormon and supposedly contained a record of an ancient people who had migrated from Israel to the Americas in 600 B.C. So Joseph Smith gets wind about these golden plates. He was not asked to go dig them up. He just started telling people that he had heard there were some golden plates hidden in the town of Cumorah. Now, a few years pass, nothing happens until 1827. In 1827, the angel Moroni supposedly again appeared to Smith. This time, he directed him to a location on the hill Cumorah to unearth the plates and begin translating the reformed Egyptian characters inscribed on them with the gift and power of God. Joseph Smith said that he was forbidden 
by Moroni from revealing these golden plates to anybody lest he be destroyed. Hello? <laughs> you have to immediately suspect something fishy's going on. I've got these golden plates, but I can't show them to you. Joe, come on, Joe. Now, three men by the name of David Whitmer, Martin Harris, and Oliver Cowdery prayed with Joseph Smith that they might also get to see the plates. This is spoken about in the introduction to the Book of Mormon, right in the first couple of pages. Now, according to the Book of Mormon, an angel of God came down from heaven in June of 1829 and laid the plates before their eyes to see. According to the Mormon church, sometime after Joseph Smith was done translating the plates, the plates were removed by Moroni and to this day are not available for inspection. How convenient. Now, it is interesting to note that all three of these individuals who claimed they saw the golden plates and even signed a little statement in the introduction to the Book of Mormon all left the church. Now, in March of 1830, three years after having supposedly received the plates, Joseph Smith published his results. The name of the book, the name of the translation, well, you know the title, The Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon claims right on its cover to be another testament of Jesus Christ. We have the Old Testament, the New Testament, and now... Part three, another testament. Now, the Bible says this in Proverbs chapter 30, verse six. Notice this. Do not add to his word, speaking of God's word, or he will rebuke you and prove you a liar. God has given us this promise. You add to my word, you will. There's the promise. Be rebuked and proven to be a liar. And as I will show in a few minutes, that is exactly what has taken place with Joseph Smith. Now, the Book of Mormon is made up of 15 books or divisions and appears to be slightly bigger than our New Testament. It claims to be an abridged account of God's dealings with the original inhabitants of the American continent between 600 B.C. and 421 A.D. The Book of Mormon teaches that after Jesus' resurrection, that he came to America, that he performed miracles, and chose 12 men from a people known as the Nephites to be his American disciples. Now, one month after the publication of the Book of Mormon, in 1830, Joseph Smith decided to take the next step. He founded his church in this house. That's a photograph of the house where it all began, in the city of Fayette, New York. By 1844, within 14 years, Joseph Smith, at the age of 39, had nearly 35,000 followers, 35,000 people that believed his story about God the Father having appeared to him there in the forest, having believed his story about the golden plates, even though we can't see them and all of that. In 1844, Joseph Smith was imprisoned here in Carthage, Illinois, and charged with inciting a riot 
after his city council attempted to destroy the office and presses of a newspaper company that had exposed the Mormons' secret practice of polygamy. Before Joseph Smith could be tried on these charges, a mob broke into his cell and killed both him and his brother. Shortly before his death, Joseph Smith had these words to say. Listen to the humility here. He says, I have more to boast of than ever any man had. I am the only man that has ever been able to keep a whole church together since the days of Adam. Neither Paul, John, Peter, nor Jesus ever did it. I boast that no man ever did such a work as I. The followers of Jesus ran away from him, but the latter day saints never ran away from me yet. Perhaps Joseph Smith never read Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 24. It says, let him who boasts, boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord. If you ever think you have any reason to boast, make sure it's about what God has graciously done in and through your life. Now, what happened after Joseph Smith died? Well, a man by the name of Brigham Young took over leadership as the second president of the Mormon church. And it was under Brigham Young's leadership that the followers of Joseph Smith's teachings made the long journey west to relocate to Salt Lake City, Utah. And Salt Lake City, Utah is where the Mormon church has been headquartered to this day. Today, the Mormon church is officially known as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It's unfortunate that they have attached our Lord's precious name to their church, but that's the way it is. Mormonism, as we will see in a few minutes, is far from Christian. Now, let's move on to the second segment of our study. I want to briefly discuss with you four false teachings of the Mormon church. Four false teachings. The first false teaching that I want to draw to your attention has to do with the Mormon church's view of God. The Mormon church's view of God. Mormonism is what we call a polytheistic religion. A polytheistic religion, that is, they believe in the existence of more than one God. Now, although Mormons believe in the existence of more than one God, they only worship one God, whom they call Heavenly Father or Elohim. Now, this God, Elohim or Heavenly Father, is just one of many gods in an eternal chain of gods that have been begotten by other gods, according to Mormon theology. Now, because Elohim is the God over this planet, LDS leaders, Latter-day Saint leaders, say we need not worship the other gods that were around before Elohim. Well, why not? Well, they say Elohim is our creator. He's the one who made us, and thus he's the God to whom we are accountable. Now, going along with their distorted view of God, the Mormon church also denies the traditional biblical account of the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity. The Bible teaches that there is one God 
who eternally exists in three distinct but equal persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is a concise statement that kind of wraps up the whole doctrine of the Trinity. One God who eternally exists in three distinct but equal persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Mormon church denies the doctrine of the Trinity. They teach rather that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost are three separate gods amongst the uncountable gods that they say exist. Now, the Bible says differently. Notice what Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6 and 8 says. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. The first what? The first God. And the last what? The last God. Besides me, God says, there is no God. I know not one. Who would know better whether thousands of gods exist? God himself, who is omniscient and omnipresent, or a modern day religious organization that's been around for almost 200 years or so is all. Well, I'll trust the Bible. Not only does the Old Testament make this clear that there is only one God, but the New Testament reiterates this same point in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Verse 4, it says very clearly, there's no way you can misinterpret this, there is no God but one. Okay? It doesn't get any clearer than that. My seven-year-old daughter can interpret that verse. Okay? So, I'll trust the Bible when it comes to that teaching regarding the nature of God. A second false teaching put forth by the Mormon church has to do with the Mormon church's view of man. Not only have they erred when it comes to the nature and existence of God, they've erred when it comes to the nature of man. The Mormon church teaches that man is a God in embryo and may attain exaltation to Godhood just as his heavenly father has. Now, some of you are thinking, whoa, they really teach that? Yes, let me throw up a couple of quotes here for you just so you realize this is actually the case, not only in their older teachings, but as current as 1992 in some of the literature I have uh, at my house. They continue to say that this is the case. Joseph Smith declared this, notice this, God himself was once as we are now and is an exalted man, end quote. So God himself once or was once as we are now. What are we now? Well, we're, we're homo sapiens. We're human beings. Joseph Smith says that's what God used to be. Uh, he, he's just an exalted man. He's a little further along in the spiritual evolutionary process, if you will. The fifth president of the LDS Church, Lorenzo Snow, coined the popular phrase as man is, God once was, as God is man may become. According to Mormon teaching, God and man are of the same exact species. The same exact species. Now, Mormons believe that before birth into this present world, that all human beings, you and me alike, pre-existed in heaven as spiritual offspring of a father and mother, a God and a goddess. 
gave birth to us as spirit creatures in heaven. Now, how did we end up here on this earth? Well, according to LDS doctrine, being born into this life here on earth is something that we each agreed to in heaven. This life serves as a test and as a means of obtaining exaltation one day to godhood. If you jump through the right hoops, if you pass the test, you yourself can go on to become a God. In fact, this was the very reason God created you, so that you could become a God. Notice this. Here's another quote. Brigham Young, the church's second president, said this. The Lord created you and me for the purpose of becoming gods like himself. We are created to become gods like unto our Father in heaven. Isn't this astonishing? Now, according to Mormon theology, one achieves exaltation to godhood by living a life of obedience to Mormon teaching and practices. Those exalted to godhood, we're told by the Mormon church, will get to inhabit a planet one day and go on procreating spirit children with their heavenly wife, continuing the cycle of gods begetting other gods. This is spoken about very clearly in their own scripture that they believe is inspired by God, a book known as Doctrine and Covenants, chapter 132, as well as in their other publication known as Gospel Principles on page 14, published in 1992. Now, is it possible that humans can become gods someday? Well, not a chance. The God of the Bible says this in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 10. This verse alone decimates this entire false teaching. Notice what God says. He says, before me, there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. There were no gods before God, and there will never be another God after him. Again, I'll trust the Bible when it comes to the nature of man. A third false teaching of the Mormon church has to do with their view of Jesus. Not only have they strayed from the truth when it comes to God and man, but when it comes to our Lord himself. Mormons call Jesus the Son of God, just as we do. They even hang up paintings of Jesus throughout their meeting areas. But they have a whole different idea in mind of what that term, Son of God, actually means. The Bible teaches that Jesus is God. John chapter 20, verse 28, that he is the creator of all things that have ever come into existence. John chapter 1, verse 3. The Bible teaches that he has existed throughout all eternity, that he's without beginning. Micah chapter 5, verse 2, and we're told very clearly that he is equal in nature with God the Father. John chapter 5. Verse 18, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Now, Mormon teaching says that Jesus was just the very first of many sons who were procreated in heaven by Elohim and one of his many unnamed wives. These sons, according to the Mormon church, included Lucifer himself. 
their publication, Gospel Principles, on page 17 and 18, says very clearly that Satan was Jesus's brother. They have elevated the nature of Satan and put him on an equal plane with Jesus himself. I'm sure Satan loves that. The Mormon church also denies the biblical account of the virgin birth. It teaches instead that the human body given to Jesus at his birth was the product of a physical encounter between God the Father who visited the earth and had relations with Mary, who was previously his spirit daughter in heaven. This is almost too much for young ears here this evening. I didn't know the youth group was going to be in here. But these are some of the bizarre things that are taught in the Mormon church. Now, fourthly, the Mormon church has a false understanding when it comes to salvation. They have strayed from the truth when it comes to how a person is saved. The Mormon church teaches that Christ's death on the cross brings about a general salvation for all mankind. The result of this salvation is that all mankind will be resurrected and given eternal life. This is something known as universalism. Because of the death of Christ, all people are going to be saved. That's what the Mormon church teaches. This salvation will even be granted to the worst of sinners, including non Mormons. Now, I'm going to explain this a little further. I'm sure some questions are popping up in your mind. Stay with me here, though, for a second. The Mormon church, though, teaches that to experience individual exaltation in heaven to the different levels that they say exist in heaven, one must have repented, one must have been baptized in the Mormon church and lived a life of obedience to the laws and teachings of the Mormon church. So, To the Mormon, Christ's work is merely the beginning of salvation. Human works are needed to complete the process. Now, depending on your works, the Mormon church teaches that a person can achieve one of three different levels in heaven. The first level is known as the telestial level. That's the lowest level. For those who do a little bit better in this life, you can actually perhaps make it into the terrestrial level there in the middle. And then there is the celestial level that is reserved only for zealous, obedient Mormons. According to the Mormon church, hell is only a temporary place of suffering for the wicked. After a person's time of punishment, they also will be accepted into glory. So in the end... All people are going to be saved. To make it into the celestial kingdom and go on to become a god, one must also be married in a Mormon temple sometime in this life. That's why there's a lot of pressure, oftentimes within the Mormon culture, for young people to get married. If you ever want the hope of becoming a god, you have to have had a marriage sealed for eternity in the Mormon temple to another Mormon. Okay, and so young people are encouraged to get married right away. Now, Christians obviously disagree with all these things. The Bible teaches that salvation and everlasting life has nothing 
to do with our works, but everything to do with God's grace. Verses like Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 9 come to mind where it says, For by grace you have been saved, through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Titus chapter 3, verse 5 says that He, God, saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy, He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 to 9, tells us how seriously God takes those who would tamper with this gospel of grace, this message that salvation is simply by grace alone, through faith alone. Notice what Paul writes here. He's writing words, remember, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And he says, but even though we or an angel, we might throw the word Moroni in there, even though we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. And in case you've misunderstood what he just said, he's going to repeat himself. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you received, let him be, in the Greek, anathema, which literally means doomed to eternal destruction. That's what God has waiting for those who would tamper with the gospel and go out and spread a false gospel. They are going to be doomed to destruction. Now, there are four books that the Mormon church believes contain the word of God. First off, they give lip service to the fact that they believe that the Bible is God's word, but then they take back what they say and say, but we really can't trust it because it's been corrupted and it's not trustworthy now. A second book that the Mormon church believes is inspired, of course, is the Book of Mormon. A third book that they believe is divinely inspired and authoritative for life is Doctrine and Covenants, Contains some revelations that Joseph Smith supposedly had. And then fourthly, they've added another book to their growing collection. And that is The Pearl of Great Price. The Pearl of Great Price. Now, for our convenience, the Mormon Church has put all four of these books into one easy-to-read package. Isn't that nice? I remember years ago getting on a plane seated next to somebody and he had gotten into his seat first and uh, I saw the gold pages on the edge of the book and I thought, praise the Lord. God, just purpose, I, I'm going to sit next to a Christian brother here. He's already got his Bible out. And I sat down in my seat and started chatting with him and he closed the book and it was like six or seven inches thick. I thought, I don't know, Lord, what that was, but that is not a Bible. That, I don't know what that is, but it's something else. And I went to find out it's what the Mormon church calls a quad. It's all four of their books that they believe are divinely inspired under one cover. The Bible, the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, and the Pearl of Great Price. Talk about adding to the Word of God. They have added three entire books to the Word of God. Amazing. Now, we don't have time to discuss the problems with each of these books that the Mormon Church has added to their collection of scriptures. I'd like to focus our attention on the Book of Mormon for a little while. The Mormon religion stands or falls on the Book of Mormon. 
it being Joseph Smith's first work is foundational to the Mormon faith. If it can be shown that this book is not the word of God, then the whole foundation of the Mormon faith crumbles. And so I would like to show you right now problems with the Book of Mormon, or we might say evidence that the Book of Mormon is not the inspired Word of God. Now, if you're like me, you're going to forget just about everything I've shared with you tonight within a matter of minutes <laughs> or hours. You'll wake up this morning and say, what did we learn last night? So what I've purposely done is I have arranged the next six points or reasons why we know the Mormon book, uh, the Book of Mormon is not inspired, into this acronym. The word scared. If you can remember the acronym scared, you're going to be better able to recall six problems with the Book of Mormon. These are six problems with the Book of Mormon that the LDS Church is scared the public will find out about. Okay, and so that's how you can remember this acronym. Now, the S in our acronym SCARED reminds us that the Book of Mormon contradicts Scripture. The Book of Mormon contradicts Scripture. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 20, God says to the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. God's given us a means to test apparent revelation. He says, hey, hold it up to the law. Hold it up to the testimony. What's he talking about? He's talking about the word of God. Hold up claims of inspiration to the word of God. And if it contradicts, if it doesn't speak according to this, you can quickly brush it aside and realize that it is fraudulent. Well, the Book of Mormon, in many instances, contradicts authentic scripture. Here are a couple of examples. The Bible says that Jesus was born in the town of Bethlehem. You all know that to be the case. Well, the Book of Mormon says that Jesus was actually born in the city of Jerusalem. This is spoken about in the book by the name of Alma, chapter 7, verse 10. Another contradiction. The Bible says that believers, Christian believers, were first called Christians after Paul's ministry took place in the city of Antioch. This is spoken about in Acts chapter 11, verse 26. Well, the Book of Mormon claims that people were known by this title as early as 73 years before Christ. This is spoken about in Alma 46, verse 15. How in the world you can have Christians before you have a Christ, I don't know. But that's what Joseph Smith claimed. Here's another example. In the Old Testament, the only ones who could be priests were the descendants of Levi, one of the 12 sons of Israel. You know what they were called. They were called the Levites. Well, Joseph Smith, forgetting his facts, apparently, about the Bible, contradicted what the Bible says. The Book of Mormon claims that descendants of the tribe of Manasseh were priests. Alma 10, verse 3, 2 Nephi, chapter 5, verse 26. The Book of Mormon has many of these kinds of inconsistencies and contradictions. If you'd like to see more, you might go to this website. Jot it down, utlm.org. 
one of the finest Christian apologetic websites on the internet when it comes to Mormonism. All right, moving on into the C in our acronym SCARED. The C reminds us that the Book of Mormon has undergone enormous change. The Book of Mormon has undergone enormous change. Joseph Smith said that he translated the golden plates from which he supposedly got the Book of Mormon letter by letter and, quote, by the power of God. He claimed to have had the supernatural power of God to help him as he translated the golden plates. Now, Joseph Smith also went on to say that the Book of Mormon was the most correct of any book on earth. And this was stated after the first edition was published. It's the most correct of any book on earth. Now, if that was true, there shouldn't have been any need for corrections, even spelling and grammatical errors, but there have been changes to the Book of Mormon, lots of them, in fact, far more than you probably realize. There have been more than 4,000 changes made to the Book of Mormon between the time that the original was published in 1830 and the current edition, published in 1981. More than 4,000 changes. I'll put a picture up on the screen for you of just one page in the Book of Mormon. Many of the changes were corrections to Joseph Smith's misspellings and grammatical errors, but there have been many more changes that are quite substantial. This can pose a real problem to Mormons on your porch. If the Book of Mormon is the most correct of any book on earth, as Joseph Smith said, and if the Book of Mormon were truly translated letter by letter by the power of God, by Joseph Smith, there would have been no need for any changes. Here are a couple of examples of these troubling changes. The original version published in 1830, says in 1 Nephi chapter 11, verse 21, that Jesus is the eternal Father. Ah, later on they realized we can't teach that. Jesus can't be the eternal Father. That contradicts what the Book of Mormon says elsewhere. So what did the Mormon church do? Well, they changed it. And today's version says in the same exact verse that Jesus is the Son of the eternal Father a doctrinal change made to the Book of Mormon. The original version at Mosiah chapter 21, verse 28, says that King Benjamin had a gift from God whereby he could interpret such engravings. Well, the Mormon church realized later on this was not true. So what did they do? Well, they changed it. Today's version in the same verse says King Mosiah had a gift from God whereby he could interpret such engravings. We could go on and on. We could do a month-long series of studies looking at these. Like I said, there's 4,000 plus changes made to the Book of Mormon. Now, if you'd like to see actual scanned photographs of the original 1830 version of the Book of Mormon with your own eyes to compare with a modern-day translation, you can go to alwaysbeready.com, my website, and click on Mormonism. And there's a link there that will take you to a principal, 
edition of the 1830 version of the Book of Mormon. Let's move along. The A in our acronym SCARED reminds us that archaeological verification for the Book of Mormon is absolutely lacking. Archaeological verification is absolutely lacking. Not one piece of evidence has ever been found to support the Book of Mormon when it comes to archaeology. None of the large cities it names have ever been found. No ruins have been found, no coins, no letters or documents, no monuments, nothing in writing, none of the rivers it mentions, no mountains, none of the topography mentioned in the Book of Mormon has ever been identified. Nothing which demonstrates that the Book of Mormon is anything other than an early 19th century piece of American fiction invented by Joseph Smith has ever been found. If a Mormon tells you that that is incorrect, tell them you want substantiation. I've had Mormon missionaries say, no, 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 there are archaeological discoveries. And I say, show me. Bring me a photograph. Okay? And I want non-Mormon documentation. I don't want some article written by a Mormon apologist. I want like a, a, a story, you know, in Newsweek or some source that we can agree on that is not biased. Okay? The sources that I've gone to that are non-biased about these issues, say otherwise. Listen to this. The National Geographic Society, okay, in 1981, answering a question about whether or not archaeology has substantiated the Book of Mormon. Listen to what they said. Neither the society nor any other institution of equal prestige has ever used the Book of Mormon in locating archaeological sites. Although many Mormon sources claim that the Book of Mormon has been substantiated by archaeological findings, this claim has not been scientifically substantiated. I love this last sentence. However, several locations in the Bible have. Now, how about the Smithsonian Institute? They put out this statement a few years back, 1996. They said the Smithsonian Institution has never used the Book of Mormon in any way as a scientific guide. Why not? Well, they go on to say, Smithsonian archaeologists see no connection between the archaeology of the New World and the subject matter of the book. The National Geographic Society spoke out again on this issue in 1998. Remember, our previous quote was from 1981. They came out again in 1998 and they said this, Archaeologists and other scholars have long probed the hemisphere's past and the society does not know of anything found so far that has substantiated the Book of Mormon. Now, even some Mormon scholars, such as D.F. Green, are conceding that this is the case. Green was formerly the editor of the University Archaeological Society newsletter, published where? At Brigham Young University. This guy worked there at this Mormon school. Listen to what he said. He was the editor of the archaeological newsletter. He said, no Book of Mormon location is known with reference to modern topography. Biblical archaeology can be studied because we do know where Jerusalem and Jericho were and are, but we do not know where Zarahemla and Bountiful, those are cities mentioned in the Book of Mormon. He says, we don't know where Zarahemla and Bountiful were or are. It would seem then that a concentration on geography should be the first order of business. We need to concentrate more on finding geographical sites mentioned in the Book of Mormon. But then he says, oh, We've already seen that 20 years of such an approach has left us empty-handed. <laughs> I forgot. We've already been trying very hard to find geographical cities. And I forgot. We've come up empty-handed. 
Or there was this man, Thomas Stuart Ferguson, a Mormon archaeologist and apologist. This man dedicated more than 20 years of his life to finding proof for the Book of Mormon. In fact, he founded the New World Archaeology Foundation, where? At Brigham Young University. This foundation was established for the purpose of unearthing archaeological evidence that would support the Book of Mormon. After utterly failing to find any evidence, listen to what he said. He said, with all of these great efforts, it cannot be established factually that anyone from Joseph Smith to the present day has put his finger on a single point of terrain that was a Book of Mormon geographical place. And the hemisphere has been pretty well checked out by competent people. I must agree with D. Green. He's the guy we just quoted from. I must agree with D. Green, who has told us that to date, there is no Book of Mormon geography. I, for one, would be happy if D. was wrong. You can't set Book of Mormon geography down anywhere. Notice this, his conclusion, because it is fictional. Now, in the rest of this letter where I had to put, you know, dot, 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 he goes on to explain why he's going to stay a part of the Mormon church in, in spite of the fact that he knows the whole thing's a fraud. And he concludes with this sentence. He says, Mormonism is probably the best conceived myth fraternity to which one can belong. All of my friends belong to it. My family belongs to it. Why would I leave? That was his conclusion. All right, let's move on to a fourth problem with the Book of Mormon. The R in the acronym SCARED reminds us that the Book of Mormon rips off thousands of words and phrases from other sources. The Book of Mormon rips off thousands of words and phrases from other sources. In other words, it contains extensive plagiarism. As you know, to plagiarize is to take ideas or writings from another and offer them as one's own. Well, the Book of Mormon does this hundreds of times. Now, what's most troubling about this is that in addition to borrowing from other books, secular writings that were in existence back in the early 1800s, the Book of Mormon puts forth some 27,000 words, verses, and paragraphs that were taken directly from the King James Version of the Bible. There are even whole chapters lifted out of the King James Version of the Bible. In fact, even the italicized words in the King James Version have been plagiarized. Now, why is this so interesting? Well, because the italicized words, as noted in the preface of the King James Version, were added by the King James translators to add clarity. And yet, even those words ended up in the Book of Mormon. Now, that's odd. And in case I've lost you, let me explain here visually what, just, what I've just stated. Joseph Smith said that the golden plates that he supposedly translated in 1830 were actually originally pinned all the way back in 600 B.C. to about 421 A.D. Interesting. That raises a challenging question for the Mormon church. How could the Book of Mormon contain such extensive quotations from the King James Version of the Bible that was written in Old English, Old Victorian English, and wasn't even published until 1611, more than a thousand years later? 
Now, the answer to the question is that Joseph Smith plagiarized from the King James Version of the Bible. There's no getting out of that. All right, let's move on. Our E and our acronym SCARED reminds us that the Book of Mormon is permeated with scientific and historical errors. The Book of Mormon is permeated with scientific and historical errors. For example, the Book of Mormon claims that in 600 B.C., about 2,600 years ago, there was this migration of Hebrew people to the Americas. The introduction to the Book of Mormon says that these people, whom Joseph Smith called Lamanites, are the principal ancestors of the American Indians. Now, in other words, the Book of Mormon is teaching here in its introduction that Native American Indians actually trace their roots directly back to the Hebrew people. Well, that foundational claim in the Book of Mormon has been disproved, utterly disproved, by a wealth of scientific DNA research. Research done on thousands of individuals from scores of Native American tribes, Alaska down to the tip of South America show that the overwhelming majority of DNA in these tribes after the time of Columbus originated in northeastern and north central Asia, not Israel. Research done on the remains of Indians that predate the time of Christopher Columbus reveal this even more so. 100% of the pre-Columbian individuals had DNA that originated in northeastern and north central Asia. So, what have archaeologists and anthropologists concluded? They've reached a consensus. The Native American Indians were not and are not related to the Hebrew people, as the Book of Mormon claims. There was never a Hebrew migration to the Americas in ancient times, and there was never evidence that there was ever a Lamanite race that evolved into the American Indians. All right, let's move on. Headed down the home stretch. That brings us to the D in our acronym SCARED that reminds us that Joseph Smith was a deceitful, false prophet. Joseph Smith was a deceitful, false prophet. Good reason in enough, or enough good reason just in that point to reject the Book of Mormon. Joseph Smith made numerous false prophecies. Here are a couple of quick examples. In September of 1832, Joseph Smith claimed that the Lord told him that the Latter-day Saints would build the new Jerusalem and its temple in the city of Zion, in the state of Missouri, during his generation. Listen to what he said. He said, For verily this generation shall not all pass away until a house shall be built unto the Lord and a cloud shall rest upon it which cloud shall be even the glory of the Lord which shall fill the house which house shall be built unto the Lord in this generation upon the consecrated spot as I have appointed. Now Joseph Smith was here in Kirtland, Ohio at the time that he made this prophecy. Little did he know that as he spoke that prophecy, his followers in the town of Zion, where that temple was going to be built, were being run out of town, their printing presses were being destroyed, and some of their leaders were being tarred and feathered. Obviously, this is a false prophecy. 
It's been 170 years since this prophecy was made. Generations have come and gone since 1832. And the New Jerusalem has never been built in Zion, Missouri. Here's one more example. On May 6th, 1843, Joseph Smith made this prophecy. He said, I prophesy in the name of the Lord God of Israel, unless the United States redress the wrongs committed upon the saints in the state of Missouri and punish the crimes committed by her officers, that in a few years, the government, the American government, will be utterly overthrown and wasted and there will not be so much as a potsherd left. Now, lest you think I make these things up, here are Joseph Smith's words right in an old LDS publication. Now, these things are still in print for people who are willing to uh, look these things up. Now, the United States did not redress or rectify any of the wrongs committed against the Mormons in Missouri. And now, over 150 years later, the U.S. government is still standing. So here we have, once again, another example of a false prophecy. God tells us in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 18 what we should think about false prophets. He says, when a, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. You shall not fear him. You shall not follow after him. And so on. All right, now let's wrap it up. That's enough about the Book of Mormon. We have the acronym SCARED to help you recall some of those things. Give me about five more minutes. I want to tell you exactly how I like to go about witnessing to Mormons on the porch. The Holy Spirit may give you an entirely different approach. But here is how I like to do it. Step one, greet them lovingly. Greet them lovingly. If you're rude or you persecute cultists on your doorstep, it only encourages them. And they're fond of quoting Jesus' words where he said, you're going to be persecuted. You know, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus are going to suffer persecution. If you're rude to them, you shut the door on them, uh, you're short with them or that kind of a thing, it's only going to fortify them in their position. Now, number two, listen to their presentation. Okay, just allow them to talk. That will be reciprocated. You show them kindness and allow them to talk. They're going to allow you to talk. Okay, so I let them go through their presentation. It's usually a pretty memorized presentation. They give it day after day, doorstep after doorstep. And they typically, at least according to the, um, uh, the Mormon Missionary Handbook, they are encouraged to close by sharing their testimony. And they'll say something along these lines. This is straight out of the book. They'll modify it a little bit. They'll say something like, I testify to you that Joseph Smith is a prophet of God. The Mormon church is true. Jesus is the Christ. The president of the Mormon church is a prophet on the earth today. They typically leave out the thing about the Mormon president for whatever reason. But then they will typically close with a challenge to you. Their challenge to you is this. We invite all men everywhere to read the Book of Mormon, to ponder in their hearts the message it contains, and then to ask God, the Eternal Father, in the name of Christ, if the book is true. Those who pursue this course and ask in faith will gain a testimony of its truth and divinity by the power of the Holy Ghost. Their entire goal in their first meeting with you on the porch is to put a Book of Mormon into your hands, encourage you to read it, and pray about whether or not 
it is true. So what do we do? Number one, we greet them lovingly. Number two, we listen to their presentation. Number three, right when they close with their challenge, you tell them you have already looked into the Book of Mormon. Okay? Now you're saying I have? (laughs) Uh, Yes, you have. In fact, you've even read some of the Book of Mormon. I have? (laughs) Tonight, on the screen. Okay? You can truthfully tell them I've looked into the Book of Mormon. They're going to be shocked. They never meet anybody who's even read the Book of Mormon or, you know, let alone uh, own one or something like that. And then right on the heels of that, you follow up and you say something like, in fact, I ran into a few problems and maybe you can help me out. Ah, this is a whole different strategy rather than blasting them, okay, and telling them everything that you disagree with them about. I just say, hey, you know, I've, I've actually looked into the Book of Mormon. I'm glad you guys are here t- today. You know, I've, I've had some questions for the past couple of years, and this is cool. Come on in. I, I've got some, some uh, you know, uh, some problems with the Book of Mormon, you know, things I think I've discovered, and maybe you can help me out. Then, what do you do? Number five, you excuse yourself for a moment, and I would go and pray. Okay? Our battle is not against flesh and blood, the Bible says. And go get your list of questions. So you excuse yourself for a moment, you go pray and get your list of questions. What questions are you talking about here, Charlie? Well, if you haven't written down my website, write it down now. Alwaysbeready.com. On the left-hand side of the screen there, at alwaysbeready.com, click on the link Mormonism. How easy is this, okay? We're taking all the hard work out of this for you. You click on the link Mormonism and right after you click there, you're going to see this page and you're going to see an article, Questions to Ask Mormons by Charlie Campbell. Now, I'd encourage you to do this this week. Don't wait until the Mormon missionaries show up on your porch. Okay, people have emailed me and said, I didn't listen to you. They came to my door today. I had to run upstairs and turn on my computer. Then my computer froze and I was upstairs for like 10 minutes and they're wondering what I'm doing. And then I come down, I'm all flustered and I've got this page of questions. And another tip here, don't print out the whole list of questions. Okay, copy and paste three or four of your favorites onto a piece of paper or even hand write out a few. If you come down with a big scroll of questions, they're going to realize you've been on the internet and you've just copy and pasted some things. Okay? So, questions to ask Mormons. So you go get your list of questions. Step number six. This is exactly how I do it, by the way. Okay? And we've found some success here. Ask the questions you've prepared ahead of time. They're going to be excited to help you until they hear your questions. You're going to ask the questions you've prepared ahead of time. Here are a couple sample questions. Are there any prophecies in the Book of Mormon that have been fulfilled that would, you know, maybe help substantiate its divine origin? Guys, the Bible's filled with fulfilled prophecies. The Book of Mormon has zero. It'll be good for them to find this out as they try to find you an answer for this question. Are there any archaeological or historical proofs, maybe from non-Mormon sources, that would, you know, maybe prove that the people and places mentioned in the Book of Mormon actually existed? (laughs) Why does the Book of Mormon state that Jesus was born in Jerusalem when history in the Bible state that he was born outside of Jerusalem, in the city of Bethlehem? Uh, I've read where Joseph Smith said that he, you know, translated the golden plates letter by letter by the power of God. It's the most correct book of any on earth, if that's true, 
why has the Mormon church had to make thousands of changes to the Book of Mormon? You know, that was originally published in 1830. I'm curious about that. Why do Bible verses quoted in the Book of Mormon contain the italicized words from the King James Version? You know, that were added by the King James translators in the 16th and 17th century. That just seems so odd to me. Alwaysbeready.com. Okay, a big list of questions there. Now, how do we wrap things up? You suggest to them the idea of getting together again. They're not going to have any answers to hardly any of those questions. They are going to have to maybe for the first time in their life go investigate their religion critically because they want to come back and answer your questions. I have found that that is a very good way to plant seeds in their minds that will begin to cause them to doubt the reliability of their leadership. And then when they come back and you have your next set of questions, part two, part three, part four, you just keep praying for them, share your testimony with them, share the truth with them in love and just commit them to the Lord and see what God might do. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you tonight for the truth of your word and how clear it stands up when compared with air. And Lord, tonight we want to just lift up a prayer for Mormons around the world. These are dear people whom you love. And we pray that you would give us your heart for them. Lord, we pray that you would give us opportunities in the months and years ahead as we await your coming to share the truth in love with them. God, we pray that you would bless our efforts to reach out to them and to be used by you in their lives. And we pray that the questions we would ask them, the things that we would share with them, Lord, would sink down into their hearts, God, and that your Holy Spirit would continue to work in their lives, that their eyes might be opened and that they might be saved, that they might come to a knowledge of the truth. We pray that you give us the courage and the boldness to open our doors the next time they knock and to reach out to them in love. We love you this evening. We praise you. We worship you as our Lord and our King. Bless my brothers and sisters as we head our way. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen.